Welcome to this podcast. I'm very, very pleased to welcome today Dr. Susanna Lynch, who is the head of the Myeloma and Amyloidosis Program at Columbia University uh, at, at New York Presbyterian uh, Hospital. And uh, so very, very pleased, Suzanne, that you can take uh, time out of your busy schedule to join us today. Thank you for having me, Brian. Thank you so much. And then also joining us is uh, Yelak Baru, who is a myeloma patient, who is a board member for the International Myeloma Foundation and is really a, a strong advocate extraordinaire. And so very pleased to welcome you both to discuss the impact of the COVID-19 virus crisis, which has such a profound impact around the world and certainly here in the United States. And we're concerned about the impact for myeloma patients. And so Suzanne has been at the epicenter of this crisis period in New York City. So I'd like to start, Suzanne, by asking you how uh, you have fared uh, during these crazy times. Uh, First of all, thank you for hanging in there and being a frontline worker and getting your PPE on and and going into work and and helping these patients at the hospital. So how has it been for you through these very, very difficult times? Brian, first of all, thank you for sharing or giving me the opportunity to share the experience uh, we make here in New York. It was definitely a challenge and I would say it was a difficult time. I feel like we survived the storm and we swim in calm waters and now we have to look where is land, you know, what do we do, how do we reorganize ourselves. So the time in New York was not easy, but somehow we saw the wave coming. We saw that the first cases were in Seattle and as the first patient was admitted to the ICU here at Columbia, we immediately started to reorganize our clinic. I have to say that the hospital and our practice was very generous in allowing televisits. So what we immediately did is that all the patients who had smoldering multiple myeloma and MGAS, also patients who were stable, for instance, on regular maintenance, didn't have any immediate issues. We switched all those patients to televisits, and that worked very well. What percentage of your patients were you able to manage with this telemedicine-type approach? Was that a majority of your patients? Yeah, that was, and I was surprised it was a majority of patients. And when we all go back to our practice, there are many patients, for instance, who are on a combination of an oral treatment and an IV or subcutaneous treatment, such as DARA. And for many patients, I had the treatment, the IV treatment on hold and continued with the PO treatment. So same, um, when you go back to the data, you can do the same for Zomera, this phosphonate. There are data that Zomera can be stretched to every three months. So I also had the Zomera for the most patients on hold. So I was able to really minimize the patients who had to come in. And there was a point our clinic was completely closed. And what we did is our BMT, our bone marrow transplant unit, that treats patients also with multiple myeloma, was COVID-free. So that was the last kind of, you know, I would say, island, which only allowed patients who were tested for COVID negativity to go on that inpatient service. And patients who really needed IV treatment, this is not a long-term solution, but it helped us to get over the, I would say, three, four weeks where we had an enormous amount of patients in the hospitals. And also, I have to say, our patients were afraid to come into the hospital. This is a site. We had, at the highest peak, over 2,000 COVID patients in our hospital. Now, the doctors who were caring for the myeloma patients, uh, you were restricted to to that care. You were not taking care of the COVID-positive patients. Is that correct? That's not correct because what happened is that we 
did inpatient service on our BMT, our transplant and myeloma patients. And there was such an influx of patients that COVID-positive myeloma patients also came to our service. So that means we had the full protective gear with a Tyvek hazmat suit. We first rounded on our healthy non-COVID patients and then went to the COVID patients. Yeah, it was an experience, but it gave us also the opportunity to appropriately, I would say, treat our patients and continue the care for our patients. That's uh, remarkable. Uh, yeah, tremendous, tremendous work. Uh, so, so Yelik, uh, listening to this, uh, what is you, your reaction from a patient perspective? Uh, this uh, sounds like very difficult times. Uh, how does this sound uh, as, a, as a patient uh, with these types of changes? Thanks for having me. I think the best thing to do is not get COVID at this point, if possible. The patients continue to be vigilant even before COVID. Myeloma patients, a lot of us, when we traveled on planes or were with other people, we had like hand sanitizer cleaned our table and in some cases either had a mask or the air purifier thing that we were wearing on our, on our neck. We were very infection aware due to either the treatment or the already compromised system that we, we already had. But what COVID introduced is I don't know who's next to me, either at work or even in some cases at home, who may already be uh, exposed to COVID and maybe giving it to me without knowing or unintentional. So the level of fear among myeloma patients, I think, has been elevated through this crisis since the end of February, early March time. Right, right. So, but my my impression is that these cautions related to infection that myeloma patients have had has really protected them from the risk of exposure. And so, Ashley, uh, Susanna, I have a question for you. Uh, the patients who were COVID positive, they presumably picked up the infection somewhere in the community. Uh, where do you think they picked up that infection? I've heard that it can be in families or it could be at other types of gatherings. Uh, what, what was your impression about the source of the infection? Right, that is an excellent point. And I had the opportunity to really carefully watch my patients over the last, I would say, two months. And I made a very interesting observation. All my, and I have, you know, that I have a large population of amyloidosis patients. None of my amyloidosis patients pick up COVID. I cannot explain this. I think our amyloid patients are very well aware of the disease and of their, I would say, own health because when you have amyloidosis, you, you need a certain health awareness. So our amyloid patients and patients with multiple myeloma who really took care of themselves, separated themselves, didn't go out shopping, didn't travel, they did very well. And I have many, many patients, the majority of my patients did not pick up COVID. I saw that the patients who got infected with COVID got it via family members, most of them, uh, caregivers. I have, unfortunately, many older patients who depended on caregivers. And those caregivers came in and saw other than shopping and went out, had maybe kind of, you know, an unnoticed infection. So I have to say, most of my patients received the COVID via other family members or caregivers. Right, right. This is actually has been an observation around the world is that once the COVID infections enter a community, then they can be brought home and spread within family members. I don't know, Yelik, if you have been aware of this type of pattern and, and the need for cautions in that regard. Yes, absolutely, Dr. Dury. So a lot of the myeloma patients that have been around for a long time 
have isolated themselves, if you would, or self-quarantined, but they have also portioned their caregivers, caregiver family members, to, to do the same. But I have also seen this surgery in non-myeloma patients, like I have friends and family members that have either hypertension or diabetes, and if the other person works in the hospital, for example, either they're not coming home or they are coming home and changing their clothes in the garage and uh, coming home with a clean clothes after taking a shower type of scenario. Right, right. This is an important point. My perception is that the issues for our myeloma patients have been predominantly with other risk groups and risk factors, patients who have high blood pressure, who have diabetes, who maybe are somewhat overweight or have a chronic lung or kidney issues. These other kinds of risk factors seem to have been the dominant way that the COVID infection has become established in different communities. So so the other thing you know, we can perhaps talk about is two aspects. One, the emergency changes in care that have been required because of the crisis where patients have been reducing the Zameda infusions and obviously autologous stem cell transplant has been mostly on hold and there has been some decrease in the use of the daratumumab infusions and, and things like that. Have you seen issues or concerns related to trying to implement some of these kinds of changes? Yes, Dr. Dury. I have, me personally, I am on Dara one day and I am monitoring my blood work, not just a monthly basis. Now I'm doing it twice a month just to make sure that there are abnormal dips in some of the numbers and that I need in order to continue to quote unquote fight the, the infection. But patient community, both online and in person, I have seen a lot of people that have both gone from like for cousins to Milaro, for example, and some people that have daratumumab for some period of time. There are also people that were going to like the myeloma centers, maybe in New York or other places, and they have been allowed to do the test in their local hematology and oncology office or like the local lab court or quest offices and send the lab results or the lab to the myeloma centers. That way, they avoid potential travel and also exposure to others in that cancer center. These changes that have been necessary to avoid coming into the clinic and to avoid exposure are hopefully things that will be for a couple of months here, but we're really very anxious to be able to get back to a time frame and strategies where patients will be able to come in and get the treatments that they need. And so how do you envisage the myeloma clinic by the summer or into the fall? What what do you see as, as the changes that will be necessary to make it safe and comfortable for a myeloma patient? to come in and, and get the, the treatment that they need. The telemedicine is, I think, a good alternative, but it doesn't really replace that in person. You as a doctor, me as a patient, seeing each other's eye glass and in some cases gauging body languages and other nonverbal communication you have when we talk about symptoms or when we talk about uh, changing treatments and things like that. So I think it really is important to understand telemedicine is complement or a supplement and not necessarily a replacement for that in-person human touch that doctors bring 
to the table. So we need to make sure that we make it safe or as safe as possible for patients to go back to the office. Right. I fully agree. I think that it's okay to chat on a video conference about the, the treatments, but there are some very personal uh, decisions where if a treatment needs to be changed, there are some important choices to be made. And these are situations where it's quite important to have an in-person uh, visit and uh, where you can really see the implications of one treatment versus another and just chat about the details. And so, uh, Suzanne, I'm sure you, you have some thoughts on this. Right, Brian. I completely agree. And I have to say physicians also suffer not seeing the patient. Um, it was for me quite interesting over the last two months only to see patients with a blurry camera. Sometimes the camera is directed towards the ceiling and you don't even see the face of the patient. So nothing is more important than sitting in a room that the physician can see the patient, you know, and you know your patient by the time. How is the patient coming in? How is the interaction? I don't remember how often I said to my patient, Today, you are very quiet. Don't you feel well or is there anything? So there is a non-verbal connection between the doctor and the patient that is missing during the televisit. And I think and I realized that I didn't know that before, but I'm realizing there is something very important in a non-verbal connection which we should not miss. So what we need to do, especially in New York, I think we have to rebuild trust. Our patients, and I understand that, are scared to death. They are at home and they said, you know, I'd rather stay at home and maybe my myeloma is progressing a little bit, but I don't want to come in. And I think it's on us, the physicians and the hospital and the practice, to regain the trust. So what we do in New York, for instance, we test all our COVID patients before they come in. So that means if you come for an admission or if you come for an outpatient treatment, you get your COVID test. And only negative patients are allowed to enter our infusion center or to enter our practice. So we know the test is not perfect, but this is the first step in addition to taking symptoms, but also taking the temperature. And what we do to kind of, in addition to just do the test, we completely reorganize our patients, I would say, stream. If you come in before you went to a waiting area and you were sitting with patients in a crowded area, this will be completely restructured. So patients come in and they are guided directly into the room, for instance, and do not wait in waiting room. That means we have to decrease the density. We don't want to decrease the volume. So, for instance, we thought about to offer morning and late evening sessions. You know, maybe have your practice open until 7 or 8 p.m. Or maybe we're considering also to have practice on Saturday just to spread the density. So that's all in organization right now. These are very, very key points, but I can see it that this will be increasing the, the, the stress for the doctors for you. I mean, I think it's very important for the patient uh, safety, but this will extend the hours and it will make it more uh, complicated. Uh, one point to emphasize, when you talk about testing, I think the key thing is obviously to make sure that patients coming in are COVID uh, negative for the virus and so they would be getting, you know, the throat or nose checked. How about the antibody testing? There's been quite about a, uh, quite a bit of controversy about that. How do you view antibody testing? So antibody testing is offered more and more, but I have to say it's a little bit disappointing and there are a lot of things we don't know. So we know for sure from patients and especially cases who were, or patients and also colleagues who were positive but had a minor cause of the disease that they might not develop enough antibodies to be positive in the testing. So we are still a little bit puzzled. If you are positive for the antibody testing, that is great. And that shows that you might have protection. If you went through the disease and you are negative for the antibody testing, 
we don't know, maybe you didn't build up enough antibodies, or maybe the test is not sensitive enough. So there are open questions. So the antibody testing is a great additional tool, but not 100% kind of in our reliance. Yeah, so I, f- I fully agree. I don't think that the antibody test really helps us to kind of open up and give security to patients or uh, workers who are part of the clinic or the, or the process. And so, yeah, like there's been quite a bit of talk in the myeloma community. Uh, that a lot of uh, patients have been wanting to get the antibody testing and have had questions about it. What are you thoughts? It is confusion at this time, Dr. Guri. That's the best I can tell from the patient community, both for testing for COVID exposure and the antibody testing to see uh, how you are doing or if you have had the exposure and have recovered from from it. Can, can I ask a question? Uh, one of the things I think patients are asking is we are seeing some patients in the online community that have gone through this you know, in 16, 17 days, they are fine. And there are other myeloma patients, these are myeloma patients, that have basically been in ICU, intubated, and not know what was going on around them for five days, put in an induced coma, and things like that. Are there types of myeloma or patient profiles that do better or worse than others in your experiences? So I think that this is a very important point. So Suzanne, I know that you have had a few patients in the hospital setting, but perhaps you can tell us your experience or thoughts. We didn't really see a direct hint that this patient with multiple myeloma, maybe with bone disease or certain translocation or smoldering myeloma, has a poorer prognosis. What we see is age. We know that our older patients don't do that well. If you're over 80 or 90, I think you have the highest risk of complications from the infection. I think we need more data and we are working on this to find out what specific treatment, for instance, made it more difficult to have a good response to the treatment. Is Revlimid a protection or maybe it engages or activates T-cells and you have a poor outcome? So there are a lot of open questions. But we did not see any hint except age in terms of what gives you a higher risk to have complications from the disease. Yeah, absolutely. I don't have any impression that our myeloma therapies are a particular risk factor. One of our colleagues, uh, Rafat Abenar, highlighted one of his patients, uh, COVID-19 positive, on Revlimid uh, maintenance, for example, who was doing just fine and was able to respond and do, do nicely. So I don't have any strong impression that our myeloma therapies are proving to be a strong negative factor. I agree. There's no kind of thing now that I said there is no real pattern, but there are small cases. We have to be careful. What we probably know is that patients who are under treatment for relapse refractory after multiple lines might have a harder time to build up immunity and antibodies. So we know that even for vaccinations, it's a harder response. So that might be something to, uh, detection of antibodies in patients, for instance, under a tumor that might be a little bit harder to have predictable levels. Absolutely. So as we're looking towards the, the future where hopefully we get through this crisis period into some type of a new, what I call a new abnormal, because it's really not going to be back to normal. So what sort of time frame do you see in New York, Suzanne? Uh, you're beyond the peak of the crisis. Will you be starting to do uh, stem cell transplants perhaps in uh, June, July time frame? What do you think? 
I mean, we were in a lucky position that our stem cell transplant unit or our transplant unit was COVID-free. We feel very confident at least that the patient needs the transplant to do the transplant. Actually, I think sometimes it's safer, you know, to stay in a hospital in a single room with death that is also packed for COVID than traveling for some back. I think in June, absolutely, we will resume to do stem cell transplant. But what we need to do is we will restructure our practice, our outpatient clinic, in order to avoid that any patient can get infected when he comes in for treatment. That's our goal. Yeah, that's a key point. Yes. And so, Yella, what will it take to make the patients confident that this is indeed the case and that they can go safely in for those kinds of therapies? And it includes not just stem cells, but we're keen for possibly CAR-T therapies and some other more intensive therapies. What is it going to take to get that confidence back, do you think? Well, I think knowing that my doctor or the nurse who's treating me is being tested on a regular basis to make sure that she or he is not exposed or is not currently actively harboring COVID is important, I think. Making sure that there is enough protection for them that way when they come home or when they go back to that clinic, they're minimizing exposure to them is, is I think, important as well. And I think being able to make some progress, not necessarily towards the vaccine, but towards understanding how to treat this COVID patient would also give some confidence to patients. Even if I get it, I hope not to get it, but if I get it, there may be some combination of treatments that get me healthier sooner than later. So thank you for all of these thoughts and comments. What I'm thinking right now is that for both patients and for the doctors, there is a stress. People are experiencing uh, quarantine fatigue or crisis fatigue. It's just been uh, so much effort and so many changes. And uh, so from that standpoint, uh, Suzanne, will you be able to take a break sometime soon? Uh, during the summer months uh, is when we have vacation, but I don't know if we see that on our horizon or not. <laughs> I would love to, but you know, I'm not sure how to be very honest, I'm not sure how safe it is to go to the airplane, enjoy beach. For myself, I decided to stay in the States. I know he's excellent health care. And you know what? That will go over. It will be better. And if we miss the case one year, that's okay. Maybe I take a couple of days off and enjoy Central Park. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, uh, I've made the same decision. I mean, we should have been in Italy for vacation, but you know, this is not a good time to be uh, flying. And so, so Yalek, uh, how are you uh, handling that? You know, I continue to work fortunate enough to work from home. But what the statistics is showing is people that work from home are working longer hours and blending the weekend into work days as well. So it is really important to intentionally, in, in our organization, we are bringing this concept called tagging out, where you don't think about work or you don't think about COVID-19 or whatever for at least a day. So you have some emotional recovery time built in your in your week or in every 10 days or whatever. So it really is important to take care of your emotional and mental health as much as your physical health because it is key how your physical Operate. Absolutely. So I fully support that. I think that we are going to have to take these moments, take these days here and there to, as you say, uh, Suzanne, go and enjoy uh, the park, have some time off and g- get away from this for a little bit of time. And we have to advise that for our patients as well, who uh, have, have been faced with many challenges in, in this time. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast. This has been Conversations with Dr. Brian Dury. For more information about multiple myeloma and the International Myeloma Foundation, please visit myeloma.org.